This week's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by LaCie. As one of the leading media storage companies in the entertainment industry, LaCie has consistently brought innovative ideas to the market. By now, everyone knows the iconic orange rubber bumper that wraps the LaCie rugged drive. But did you know that LaCie has a rugged SSD? With the ability to transfer 4K raw video with speeds up to 4 megabytes per second, hardware encryption, and a truly rugged design that will take most anything you can throw at it, including dropping it in water or running it over with a two-ton car, the rugged SSD is a dream piece of equipment for any content creator who is on the move. For listeners of the Art of the Cut podcast, LaCie is offering 10% off the rugged SSD or any other LaCie drive when you shop on filmtools.com with coupon code LACIEPOD. That's L-A-C-I-E-P-O-D at checkout to receive 10% off your LaCie purchase on filmtools.com. So next time you need a new drive, head over to filmtools.com and use code LACIEPOD at checkout to get 10% off your LaCie purchase. Hello and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with Jeff Groff. Jeff was nominated for an Ace Eddie in 2009 for an episode of Entourage. His filmography also includes the feature films War Dogs, Entourage, and The Hangover Part 3. His TV work also includes Ballers and Community. Today I'm speaking with Jeff about editing director Todd Phillips' feature Joker, starring Joaquin Phoenix. I'm assuming you're uh, you're all done with uh, Joker, or are you still, uh, I don't know, doing DVD stuff or some kind of deliverables, or are you off to your new next project? It is, it's really more deliverables. At this point, we're just QCing DCPs and film prints. There's no decisions left to be made other than, does this have a, a glitch in it? <laughs> I think I'm down to, to looking at the 35 millimeter 5.1 print, and that might be it. And how long have you been on that project? Tell me a little bit about the schedule. Uh, it's been about almost exactly, and it's like exactly a year. We went from Sydney, that was in New York, and we shot in New York until early December. Uh, I think the first week in December. I actually came back to LA over Thanksgiving. So I wasn't, I wasn't there for the last week or two. Uh, were you on for any pre-pro, uh, or did you just show up like the day before or the week before they started uh, shooting? Um, I'm trying to remember now. I feel like sometimes I'll do a recut on the previous sequences, mm. and I think I did that when I first got to New York. So I we had I was in New York just before we started shooting. So I was I was they had a sequence that had been that had been done in, in previs. And when you do a previs, they always say like, yeah, well, you know, we, we've timed out how long it takes somebody to walk from here to here or to do this. And it always just seems weird and slow. And so I'll typically recut it just to make it play like a real sequence. We'll tend voices in there and just kind of put some music in and some sound effects and like try to make it play like a real sequence. So it's like, even though it, the timing might not be real, it feels like the timing's real when you watch it and so you get an idea of how it might play sure um, and then it completely changes by the time you're done I did an interview with some previous editors and they did say you know they feel like they kind of cut things long because if you cut them short there's nowhere to go but if you cut them long they can get cut down <laughs> yeah exactly and then and so that's that's exactly where it ends up going is that it's like we have a long cut with the previous and then 
um, you know, Todd will just be like, let's make this look like what it might look like in the movie. And then I just go in and that's exactly what I do. They just cut it down. And I'll speed up the shots and things like that just to just to kind of get a mock-up. Like I said, it's, it might not be realistic, but it plays, it just plays a little better. Um, so it's like no, no foul on them at all for putting together what they're putting together. That's like that's how it's done. And then we just kind of give it a little polish. Do you flesh out those previses with sound effects and music and all that stuff, or are you just basically yes. cutting a picture? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, to be fair, and so do they. I, you know, when I was recutting this, this previs early on, uh, I was using, they had a library of sound effects that they had brought into the app, and I was, and I was using those sound effects to do a recut. So it's mm-hmm. not like I just came up with that. It's they're doing their best to make it look good. So then you came back to L.A. and, uh, you know, around Thanksgiving, but the director doesn't show up till maybe January or something like that for you to start a director's cut? Yeah, he came in and, at the, I mean, really right after the holiday break. Uh, he was in on Monday, and he's one that's in every day around 10 to 7. Not that he doesn't give me time to do stuff on my own, but he wants to be involved, knows what editing is, and is good at it, and wants to be there for everything totally get it you you've uh, worked with him several times before correct yeah i originally when i worked on a movie called project x he was the top of the producer on it and then the next movie he did after that was uh hangover part three that uh deborah neil fisher and i cut together and then i cut war dogs for todd uh the last movie they did for him and now this one He's done a lot of comedy, or you've done a lot of comedy as well, correct? I like to think I've done a little bit of everything. I've mm-hmm. definitely had, before the comedy, uh, I was doing, I had done uh, a number of documentary. I ended up doing a little bit of both. Because I worked on the movie Religious with Larry Charles, and that uh, definitely crossed over between comedy and documentary. <laughs> he described it as a nonfiction comedy at the time. What do you think you bring from your documentary background to scripted? Uh, I mean, story is really like there's no better way to, in my opinion, no better way to learn how to how to build and deal with story than working on documentary. You're building it from the ground up. You don't really have a script. You have an idea of what you want to make it when you're building that. So that I think translates just in the way of thinking. You know how you how you might be able to move things around and what images you might be able to juxtapose. The practice for all that is all there. Fiction is all there in documentary. We talked about the fact that you've worked how many times with with this director? Like maybe four or five. This is the third movie third. that I've cut with him, and the fourth that I've worked with him uh, because he was producer on Project K. Is there a difference in the way that you collaborate with a, a director that you've worked with multiple times than the way you collaborate with uh, a director you've worked with for the first time, or maybe the only time? It's, it's obviously it's much more comfortable. We quickly switch back into a quick mode of communication. You know, somebody that I've worked with before that we, we have a relationship, they, you know, if they've hired me back, they trust, you know, they trust what I've done the last time. They understand what it is that I bring to it. And so there's not, you don't have to establish that. Um, it's already there. And somebody that you haven't worked for, I mean, it's, I always feel like the assembly period is, is almost kind of a long interview because they're off shooting, so they don't have time to sit with you a lot of time or not very much. And they don't, you know, they, they're just trusting that you know what you're doing, and but they're still looking to see the results. And I think that's where the, the real difference is, is that 
you know, the second time you work with somebody, the third time you work with somebody, during the production period, they naturally will have a lot more faith in you because you've been there before with them. Is there a way that you find that you need to develop uh, trust with a new director that obviously you already have with somebody you've worked with before? I'm, I'm not doing anything special to develop a trust. I'm, I'm really just doing the best I the best I can. I'd say, you know, I'm working as, as hard as I can and, and trying to make the best decisions. And, you know, my goal is always to pull out more from the footage than maybe the director knew was there. My goal with kind of an assembly is to surprise the director in a good way, where it's like, you know, I didn't even realize that we got that. What a great moment. In the world of nonlinear editing, it's, it's a non-destructive process as long as you save everything. And, you know, there's there's plenty of times I've gone back uh, and said, you know, the directors have gone back and said, let's look at the first cut of this. More often than not, it is never, I, I, don't, I don't know if it's ever been better. You just didn't have the context the first time. That's that's the thing that makes me always makes me the most nervous, especially you know when you're 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 shooting out of order and you're cutting out of order a lot of the time, and you don't get a chance to have context for several weeks. Really, you don't necessarily know who the characters are yet. You've read the script, but it doesn't. You know, script is really just a blueprint. It doesn't doesn't show you what the whole thing looks like or sounds like. The first scenes that I'm showing, I'm always I'm always nervous because I feel like there's no context. Even I don't have the context yet, and we're just building the context as we grow up, as we go along. Even in those instances, right, where you find that maybe the first cut, you know, worked better or maybe it had parts of it that worked better, there's still that value to going through the process of exploring other options. Absolutely. So if you just lucked into the best thing the first time, you'll never know if you don't what is your approach to dailies? How are you, what are you doing when you look at your takes and your setups for the first time? I'll read the notes, whatever notes there are. And if so, if there's preferred takes, I'll watch those first. That's where I start. And then I watch everything else. Typically I'll watch it backwards because, you know, if you have nine takes, a lot of times the preferred take is somewhere in between seven and nine, but then there might be something valuable to pull from take two let's say. So I, I watch just the first time through, I watch everything. And as I'm watching, I'll pull it out and drop it into a timeline. So I essentially end up with a large timeline full of selects out of any given scene. I attempt, as I drop it into a timeline, I attempt to keep it in some sort of order so that I can then go back once I've watched all the dailies and go back and watch the timeline that I created and see what I have, you know, see what bits are there. Um, from there, I really, I, I would look down and say, okay, you know, that looked good when I was, when I was watching it through the first time, given what else I pulled here, that doesn't apply anymore. So I'll pull that out. But I always save that first timeline because it always, it has the things that I, that I like from everything in it. But from that first timeline, I'll work and whittle it down into, um, a series of moments. So I'll then find the moments that I want to build the rest of the scene around and, you know, there'll be multiple alternates of the things that are in between those moments and just kind of watch those again and again until things start to naturally fall out. Did you get a chance to talk to the director before you started editing about ideas about character or what he wanted to get accomplished or did he kind of just unleash you and let, hey, show me what show me what you got and we'll we'll see whether we're competitive, you know? Well, it's interesting, this uh, project is a little bit of a special case and that I thought the script was so good and so clear as to the movie that wanted to get made. I, I mean, it was, it, it was really kind of unique. I've never seen a script that was so clear 
as to like what was there. We didn't have a lot of discussion about it prior to just jumping into cutting, just because it didn't. I didn't feel like I had a lot of questions. Um, it was really, it was really well laid out. And then once once we did get into it, you know, I I will send Todd things either that he asks for because he wants to make sure that we got the scene or things that I'm just excited about. You know, it's like if, I, if we get a scene in and I think I really, you know, I put it together and I'm really excited about it, I'll send it to him. Like, he wants to see that. Uh, with with this character specifically, it seems like the temperature of the performance or a, a specific delivery, you know, over the top, crazy, whatever it is, would, would play a big part in the editing. Were you getting a lot of variety of performance? Yes, and it was all good. I mean, I, from the first day, uh, just watching the footage the first day, I was kind of in shock um, and awe as to how talented Joaquin is. I noticed that day one that I, I, I can't believe I've never seen anything, you know, kind of like this in front of me on the Adam. And that's, you know, and it, and it continued. And he's, he's an amazing professional. He would do things different ways. He would, he would mix things up in the middle of the scene to kind of wake it up. Then when he would, when we would turn around and do the other side, he would repeat all those same things. So I was never, I was really never trapped with the performance that I had on one side and didn't have on the other. He would remember everything he did. Wow. Even down to if he smokes a lot in the movie, I felt like he knew where he was smoking the cigarette at any given time, all the time. I mean, and, and that's you know that's just that's just continuity. That's not that's in addition to the amazing acting that he was doing. So while there's always you know continuity things that you're cutting around, it just it really wasn't even it was an afterthought for me to have to deal with that because the the performance was so just engaging and commanding. You're obviously shooting out of order. You're cutting out of order. So where he is in a given performance, or you know how what level of intensity he's at in one scene has to match or play into the next scene. Uh, were you finding that oh I love this performance. I cut it this way because this was awesome. And then ah I've got to choose a different performance because of the character arc or the story arc. Yeah, I mean sometimes we had we would we did have scenes that that played two different ways. You know, maybe it, it, there, there was a scene that might play um, quieter, and then we had another version of it where we played it more intense. But they were both good, and so it was It was actually it's something that, that we could modulate really well because, like I said, he would do it multiple ways. Everything that he did was valid. Then it was a matter of, like, where, where are we in terms of that intensity? Uh, in terms of cutting out of order, the interesting thing about this is that while, yes, I did start in the, in terms of cutting out of order, um, once I kind of, I wasn't really up the camera, I was cutting in order of scenes. So, for example, let's say day one, they shot scene one and scene 35. And then day two, they shot, you know, scene three and scene 57. Then I would start with scene one, and then I would start with scene three. And I would just go forward, no matter what else was, was later. I, I worked forward through the performance. By the time we got to Real Seven, I would, you know, Real Seven got completed after shooting was over because I was, you know, I was, I was working every day. I was just working forward. So if something new came in that was, let's say, two weeks later, we had scene two come in, I would just work on scene two so that we would fill in those gaps. So Real One was done a long time before, let's say, Real Seven. So what you're saying is as you're going through, 
the dailies, you're still trying to edit them in whatever order they're delivered during the day. I've never thought of that I was, before. I've never done that. I've always just kind of chosen the, either the easiest scene to start on or start with the most difficult scene. You know, I've never done them in order. That's really interesting. Yeah, Todd wanted, I mean, it was, I'm not sure if it was his idea or my idea, but it, he, he liked it. He wanted to do it that way. And I think it was helpful because, uh, you know, Joaquin did come in a couple times during shooting, which I never had before either. And we sat down and we looked at what, because it was such a huge task, what he was doing, we went through things kind of, kind of in order and he could see where he was at with things. Like, you know, he could see where he was about halfway shoot, halfway through shooting. He could see where everything was landing, which I think was helpful to them. And again, that was that was kind of how things. Like, if anybody were to come and look at it, they'd be looking at it from the beginning, so you could see where things started. Interestingly, what I like about that now is that when you watch the movie, I mean, it's called Joker. You know where it's going. You know who you know who you're going to have at the end of the movie. But if you if you're looking at let's say 20 minutes into it, you sit there and you say to yourself, I don't know how we're going to get there. I don't see it yet. I don't see how this guy is going to become that guy. And it, it happens naturally. I mean, it develops and it happens naturally throughout the course of the movie, even to the point of when he becomes that guy, I still have a moment of like, wow, I don't know how we got here, but we got here and it worked. If anything, I'm, I'm extremely proud of that, that you might have that progression over the movie is that it's like, I don't know how we're going to get there. And that's the journey that you, that you do get there and you, you get there satisfied, you know, in a way that satisfies you. Did you find when you were going through the process of the director's cut and subsequent, you know, sets of notes or whatever, that um, you needed to rearrange structure to be able to make that organic? Or was it, like you said, the script was just so good that you were following the script? We rearranged, we did some rearrangement in uh, the structure. Whenever you're rearranging, it's just, it always is to me about the, um, the release of information mm -hmm. and how far away things are from each other. So, and that's really what it ended up being. It's like, like I said, I mean, the script is great. It's all the pieces are there. It's just that we've, we've shuffled them in a way that says, okay, there's several threads that are going on and maybe something was a little too far away. So he would be, let's say, reacting to that earlier. So we need to move the, the scene where we, where we see a reaction earlier so that you don't, doesn't seem unusual that he hasn't that he hasn't dealt with, let's say, this problem or, or this person. It's, it's really difficult to describe. The character is so unusual, and the way in which he builds or the way in which he kind of descends into his madness is a slow one. Is kind of protecting that journey, right? As an editor, I'm sure you could say, hey, let's, let's get to the crazy part, but you're trying to protect this journey that the character's on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... It's trying to protect the journey and, you know, let the performance come through because he was really, you know, it was, it was modulating stuff all the way through. You don't want to get to this kind of crazier bit too quick because how does he recover from that? If he's, if he's agitated in one scene and the next scene he's not, it's like, well, how did he, how did he get back here? And so it was, there was definitely just, just the feel of the scenes sometimes mandated the order in which they came. Some editors, as soon as they can put scene two next to scene three, that they do it, and other editors go, no, I get every sing single scene done, and then I assemble them all. Like you said, as soon as I can put scene two next to scene three, I assemble them all. 
team two meant to see what I did because I was always, and then I was also trying to play team three, team four, five in, in, a, in a very linear, like I was trying to assemble linearly as possible. Um, I haven't done that in the past, typically I'll have sections. So it might be a, a 15 minute run. I build sections as I get to like them. If I'm excited to put scene two after scene one, I'll put it together and then, and then I'm, enjoy how it plays. If it's if there's something not working about one of those two scenes yet, I'll leave them apart and work on something else and come back. Typically, this one, um, it's interesting that you said, you know, it's, as far as I never, I never was making the choice of like, oh, this one's easier, and I and I feel like doing an easier one now. This one's harder. I feel like doing that now. This one was just kind of like, okay, just get into it and get through it, no matter what. It's like just go to the next, go to the next, and there was it, it took the choice of I never had a big scene that was hanging over you and you never had an easy, you know, an easy one that was just going to take more time. It was always just whatever's next. It doesn't matter. Do you think you're going to change your methodology because you felt like it did something for you or, or was it just a change in methodology because you needed to know the character flow or, or the ebbs and flows of the, of the performance in this particular movie? I'll change depending on the movie. You know, if the next thing that I'm working on is a character study in this way, then it's a great way to do it because you get a sense of how things are progressing. If it is, if it's more kind of a non-linear story, there's no reason to do it that way. You might as, you know, you might as well just be working on saying the same story beats. If it's something that, you know, if it's, if it's intercutting between multiple stories, I'll work on the same one story and then the next story and then the next story. So, and a lot of times they're shooting in that way too. It's because of locations and actors. Right. I'll do five scenes of one story, even though those five scenes might be scene ten, scene thirty, and scene seventy-five. Um, I'll work on them all at one time, and so they all have a consistent feel. And then, then of course, when it comes time to break them up, you break them up and intercut them. To some extent, it probably happens a lot of the time naturally, because for for anybody, just because if that's how you're getting dailies in. Because of the locations, let's see, that, that scene 10, 50, and 70 or whatever, those are all shot in the same location or with the same actors, and those people are only scheduled for, let's say, three days. So in a way, you're getting those dailies in if it's all at the same time anyway. So it's a lot like keeping up the camera. And it might also depend on schedule, right? Or, or do you just feel like right. you can cut those things together so quickly? Would you be assembling as you go on a, mo a movie that is shooting faster where you're like man i can barely keep up with camera i don't have time to <laughs> assemble stuff or would you just find a, you know the time to assemble it anyway because it's not that time consuming it can go either way sometimes it's not sometimes it is i mean i'll spend the time that it needs sometimes that puts me behind camera if i if i get behind camera and it's not a scene that's pe that people are hot to see i'll let it sit there and just kind of keep trying to keep up the camera and work on that in spare time or, or pick up, a, you know, pick up, pick up weekend days or things like that. Tell me a little bit about um, temp music for this. I haven't seen the movie, of course, yet, but it seems like it might be a hard, a hard one to temp. What did you temp with and how did you, how did you think, hmm, I should get that soundtrack? <laughs> in a way, it wasn't a hard one to temp. Okay. Um, our composer, Hilder, is, first of all, fantastic. She had done about five or six cues, test temporary cues that she did to begin with, and we loved them. So basically, everything got tempted with those six cues. 
we only had a few things and, and she she's got albums of her music as well as there's a lot of there's a lot of cello and so we only used her music for it we got to the point where we had an assembly that had really only five tracks of music that got used over and over and over because it was all so good and there was even you know there were times we liked the, the score so much there were times that it was getting played on set just so that it was because she really just nailed the, the vibe of the movie with that score and so the, the two kind of like what ended up being the scenes kind of went hand in hand with the score even though ultimately we had to adjust and change the score because you can't just play those same things over and over <laughs> he sent us more stuff as time went on throughout shooting and then even after you know we'd ask for things saying like hey we have this moment and, you know even before we had it in on, in the camera we would say look at these three pages in the script and see what you come up with and whether or not it actually fit that scene just because it was just reading out the script but it all it's almost always fit someplace else if it didn't fit there and so it was just like just about everything I was scoring with was original. I think I attempted with one piece of Sicario, which was a score that she played on, and a few pieces of her music from her albums. And beyond that, it was all original. Everything I was tempting with. A lot of uh, editors talk about the value of temping with the same composer their previous scores, if possible, or other albums. Yeah, we did that with War Dogs, uh, composer with Cliff Martinez on that one. Everything that we temped with was his. Just out of curiosity, and because I just talked to Tim Squires, he was talking about the room that he was cutting in. What's your setup kind of like? We were off the Warner Brothers lot. We were just, we had a private room, and it was a, a fairly large, comfortable room with a with the couch we were not in the same location as the rest of the crew so it was just Todd and I in one room that we had a remote avid working the rest of the crew was with visual like we had our we had a in-house visual effects team and we had the visual effects editor the music editor and uh, two assistant editors post supervisor one of the producers in another office we also had a cutting room in there so when we needed to get business done with everybody else we would go over there but when we were cutting were you uh, off a big monitor or a screen or 5.1, anything special? We were just uh, left, right, center for sound, and it's pretty normal. It was about as traditional and avid setup as you would, you would ever see. We just had a big TV <laughs> on the side. My first job in the industry was at an avid training center. So I kind of got used to the very stock avid way of doing things. Uh, because I was helping to teach it, I, it just never really. That's just kind of how I, I do it. I don't I don't do a lot of customization. Uh, it's kind of like I learned the tool and, and I use the tool. What I was uh, jealous of was in talking to Tim was he edits in a room with a twelve foot screen at one end, so that's his monitor and in full five one. I feel like the five one would probably slow me down because I'd spend a lot of time figuring out where things should go. That's where the, the left-right center is. I can keep the dialogue out of the music and worry about the rest of it later. And usually, I'll cut in stereo right up until we get to the first temp mix, and then I'll go into left-right center. This, I think this one may be the last one I did left-right center all the time, but I like to keep it fairly simple. I don't like having a huge amount of um, audio tracks living down below. I like being able to see the timeline top to bottom. Looking at like a Pro Tools timeline, it absolutely drives me crazy because there's so many 
so many things and it just there's so many layers that go down I don't know how I keep track of all those <laughs> do you find at all when you move to uh, off of your avid or um, out of the editing room and you see it screened do you notice a difference does the larger screen size change your timing or pacing do you find any of that happening or no i don't i feel like um, i try to be pretty conscious of it when i'm working on the smaller screen so my avid setup like i said it's fairly traditional so i've got the you know i've got the two computer monitors and then i've got my third monitor and then we have you know the out the larger monitor and so my third monitor is the one that's closest to me and i find that that one is a pretty good representation of what it ends up looking or at least it's a good test for me as, as to what the big screen will look like because it's closer and so it just it fills my vision more that the, the larger monitors out there for everybody to see and it's the one that's, that's closer to me it also tends to be the best color so that's the one that i tend to gauge what the big screen will look like from just be you know it's like even if i have to move closer to it so if I'm watching something back, I might actually just get right up close to it, you know, kind of put my, my chin in my hand and, and sit there and watch it like it's filling my vision like a big screen. When we do finally get to a theater, I'm looking for those things, but I don't generally find that I need to make a lot of adjustments to, to translate to a larger screen. Let's talk a little bit about the process of kind of discovering the film or finding your way to what the final film is as you explore the director's cut with uh, with the director. What are some of the things that are happening and changing and the evolution of the film? Oh boy, uh, well we have the board, which, you know, with the cards on it. Those cards, and I do that for everyone. We actually had the cards in both cutting rooms, so we had the one in, over in the office with everybody and then we had a duplicate over with us that we would, you know, update. In terms of finding the structure, I mean, I feel like we, we spend, we go through it from the beginning, but as we're going through it, sometimes, you know, we start to find things that need to move around a little bit, and just being able to look at that board and see the movie live as a whole in just these little paper representations. You can kind of get lost in the timeline a little bit, and then, you you know, you look over at the board and you see all the the, the entire movie sitting there in its its paper frames, and it just kind of gives you ideas, like, kind of looking between the two, I think, gives you ideas as to what might be better served going earlier or later or or not being in there at all. In many ways, that board, it's very important what frame you take from the movie. We'll, we'll reprint those cards multiple times to make sure we're getting the right frame, that sh- the picture that shows up on that card, because the right frame might give you, you know, might make you think of something different than a frame that doesn't mean anything. We spent a lot of time on the board, actually. Our PA will spend a lot of time figuring out and making the board exactly It's a way to discuss the film that I don't know that you can do in front of an avid. I don't think you can, yeah, you can't do it in front of an avid. I mean, you can't do it any other format because you're taking a representation of large chunks of the movie and potentially moving it around or removing it. It's harder to keep in mind what came before and what came after it if you're just doing it within, you know, a smaller timeline. But when you're able to see kind of the flow, the ebb and flow of the movie represented in pictures that way makes you think about it differently and then we would spend time looking nobody saying anything looking at the board and thinking about it even if you were a little lost within a scene 
just looking kind of having having a good look at the board is uh, is always helpful. Have you used those boards on all your films? Just about. I mean, I I would have to go back pretty far to think of a film that doesn't, but I didn't. Is that something you started on documentary, or uh, did you do the same thing when you were cutting docs? No, actually, documentary it's so much harder to define. As you're going, you're coming up with new scenes. I feel like it would be a difficult process to kind of keep up with the board. At least with a when you've got a script and clearly defined scenes, you have a place to start with that board, and you can put it all up just as the movie. You know, it's like the assembly. That board goes up as the movie was shot, and then it evolves and lives with your cut. The documentary, as unless it was a clearly defined thing, where you knew what you were shooting and you were shooting that, in, you know, over a period of time, it just I think that the, the scenes in many ways flow into each other too. So it's really hard to to define it and, and build that. Probably never did anything like that on the documentary. Yeah, the last uh, documentary guy uh, I interviewed was uh, the guy that cut Apollo Eleven. He d- talked about how important the boards were in his room, but that is, that's a defined uh, event. It's true, and I, I realized I did make an error, a huge, huge error there, that when I worked on Religious, uh, it was three of us, there were three editors on that movie, and the board is the biggest board I've ever seen. It took up the space of two walls, and we ended up having to move the cutting room, and I think it, and that board moved with us. And I think the number of pictures that had to get taken just to recreate it in the cutting room was, was astounding. But it was, and that board wasn't pictures so much as it was topics. It was a board of words, and we were taking these topics and moving them around. So same idea, it's just that we weren't using them in scenes, we were, we were, we were moving topics. Is there anything more that we could talk about, about the process of how things changed? Yeah, there's a couple things. I mean, there's a couple of interesting things that, that might be good here. One is there's within the movie, like I said, you haven't seen the movie yet, but he does, he makes an appearance on what we call the Murray Franklin show. And that show is, is a live, you know, within the movie, it's a live talk show. They built an entire set for, I mean, like a Johnny Carson show style set. On that set, you know, we had a full audience back there. There was four TV cameras and then there's the film cameras. And the four TV cameras were all running. So during each take, those four TV cameras were running. We also had somebody doing a line cut, like you would on Saturday Night Live, a switcher. We actually had someone that came in from Saturday Night Live to do that. It was all being captured. So at the end of each take of the Murray Franklin show, we would have three film cameras. So there was there was generally something that was kind of singles or closer on Robert De Niro or Joaquin, and then there would be something that was wider, you know, within whatever their their language was for any given given setup. But in addition to that, we always had these four TV cameras that were running. So those were all getting captured as well. And then also the line cut was getting captured. So as we shot, and this, we shot the, scene, the sequence over the course of a week to 10 days. As it was getting shot, I was building, I was actually on set for those days with a portable Avid, and I was bringing in stuff from Video Assist that, that my assistants would overcut. We would get each take as a line cut, and then I would take those and make kind of what we called the master line cut. So each day we'd have what would ultimately, you know, it was, it was kind of favorite takes, but all from the TV camera perspective. So if you were to watch it on any given day, it was the current version of whatever his appearance on that show would have looked like. 
that's does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that's a huge amount <laughs> okay, of media. Okay, okay. It's a, yeah, it's a lot, and it, and it was a lot that you had to keep track of. But so, but we were building this every day. So when there were times, let's say you were shooting from behind the curtain, you didn't have to recreate the entire show on the front side of the curtain. You could just play what the current line cut was, and it was as though there was a show going on out there, even though there's nobody in the audience, there's nobody on stage, and you're just dealing with what's shooting back there. So as we went through, this line cut would build and build and build to you know the, the, ultimately the full appearance. Even though it was, you know, in, in the movie we don't use much. There are a few shots that come from those TV cameras, but we don't use much of it. But it, then I had this 10-minute-long sequence that was every piece of this appearance that happens on the show. And when it came time to actually cutting that, I went through and flipped those TV cameras into, because we grouped all the TV cameras with the film cameras. Mm -hmm. And the very first thing I did was to take that, that performance and flip it into our movie cameras. Uh, and it looked terrible, but it was at least a kind of a place to start. And then I could go back here and begin to shape it. And so it was almost like it was a, a refined select sequence when we got to that point. But we did have for a long time that was you know very watchable. If you, if you just left it in the TV cameras, a very watchable appearance on the show. Did you find when you were switching back and forth between the film cameras and the TV cameras that there was, was there a, a method to the madness or was it just based on performance or why were you switching from film to, t to video cameras? In the movie, uh, the switch to the TV cameras is more to give you, to, to remind you that it's going out to a larger audience. I mean, that's, that's the real reason to go out there is just to say, like, okay, that it's, you know, when this happens, everybody's watching. We didn't shoot it on anybody's TV particularly. It's just happening, you know, it, it, it comes up in a four by three aspect ratio, whereas the rest of the movie is lighter. And, so, and we actually did, when, when it was all said and done, we went back and shot it on a TV monitor, like a, like a professional Sony monitor that you would remember from 20 years ago. And so that it actually has like a legitimately TV look. And every TV that shows up in that, because it's set back prior to flat screen, it's all cheap TVs. We reshot every every piece that shows up in a TV, and anything that we needed to put back in is really you know, visual effects wise that we would need to put back into a TV, no matter where it was. We had actually shot off of a TV, so we knew it was it wasn't an effect; it was just it's a real, it looks like a real TV. So you're saying, like, if, if there was something that Joker said or the De Niro character said that you wanted the audience to remember is being broadcast, you would cut to the TV cameras. We actually thought that there would be more because because that master line cut that we made played so well. We thought that there would be more of the TV cameras. They don't show up that much. Um, it's really kind of what he comes out on the show so that you, you're reminded that, like, yeah, this is, you know, this is, it plays in that way where it's, where, you know, he goes through a couple cuts as, he, as he's coming out on stage. And they're sort of like, yeah, okay, I understand what this would look like on my TV because I've seen it before, Johnny Carson and Jay Leno and things like that. And then we get back in because we want to be closer. We want to, you know, live with these characters. It's, we, we don't want that separation to, to stay in and keep the tension alive. You don't want to live out there very long. Is there anything specific you want to talk about? Um, challenges in the editing, things you're real proud of? I'm absolutely proud of the entire movie. It's, it's hard to parse any piece of it. Our number one goal, just given what, what Keen was doing it for the camera, was to, to kind of stay out of the way, to not 
not step on it in any way and to, and to let it shine. I mean, like, to me, it was always the number one priority and then just kind of making sure it was in the right order. And an interesting little side note on titles, this is something and I, I want to talk about it just because it's something that I've, I've kind of tried to do and wanted to do for years, is that um, we've been working with digital titles for a long time now. And I don't know how many other people do it. I think that Chris Pernola might do this, but what we ended up doing with our titles is putting them putting them out to film and then scanning them back in. The reason I, I always wanted to do this is every time I look at the, the titles in the uh, digital titles of the eye, I always see the little jacket edges. And there's just, in many ways, no replacement for the kind of blur that comes from the chemical like interaction of colors on film. So. By making that mat, the kind of intermediate between you know the, the color of the title and the color of the of the picture behind it gets blurred in a way that isn't you know that is a that is a specific, very specific chemical blur and keeps the title looking sharp without the jagged edges that you get from digital. The, a company called Antenna they did an amazing job with it. For our movie, we also because the like when you see the title, the titles are yellow. It created some chemical edges too, like there's some color variation on the, on the edges that uh, we just liked. And so we ultimately thought it had a very classic look to it, very much of the time that really happened. The guys at Endcrawler are not going to be happy to hear that. They make uh, end credits, kind of web based right, end credits. Yeah. Maybe they can offer that as a service, film, filmed out end crawl credits. That's what, you know, in, initially. It ended up taking too long. Initially, we had a full credit roll for everything. So it was, you know, it's like it began. Because we have, we have end credits for the, for the there's, a few, there's a few little things beginning before the title. But then uh, initially, we had a, a credit roll that just, you know, from directed by all the way through that, that rolled up. Um, and it turns out by doing cards instead of the credit roll that we saved, I think, almost two minutes, uh, which felt merciful for getting people out. Congratulations on a great project. Thank you. I'm excited for you to see it. 
Yeah, we, we had a great discussion. I really, I loved some of the, the talking about the music. Yeah, the music, the wall, was, and... it was crazy. There was one track in particular that we liked so much and that we used so much. And then, it, it, you know, it became hard to replace almost because it was it was so good. But you can't just repeat one track throughout the entire movie. I'll tell you, uh, that, that track is there when you say it, it exists in the movie twice, um, kind of unaltered. And it's when he's, uh, he's in, he's in, a, in, in clown makeup in the early on in the movie when he's dancing, he's dancing in the bathroom. And then again, right when he's going to step out on the Murray Franklin show, both of those times is when that, that track was used. It's kind of like a very pivotal moment in the movie for him. Almost meditative uh, mm. in a way. You used it at moments when he's kind of changing. Uh, uh, as I said, we liked that track so much. We used it everywhere, and then and then kept pulling back and pulling back and saying, "We need to save this very special moment in the movie." Uh, what was your first cut? What was your assembly on this? Uh, the assembly was around two forty-five. We started working in real one before the, the the ending was really finished. We didn't think a month into it that we'd ever get below two twenty. And what did you release on? Uh, it's a two hours, which is a great length. I mean, it's, it's a, to me, ideal. It's not too long, not too short. You know, you're getting something, but you know, we're not going to, we're not going to overstay our welcome. Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Thanks again to my guest, Jeff Groth, and thanks to Michael Zack for editing the interview. I'm Steve Holfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, give us a like, leave a comment, and make sure to tell a filmmaking friend.